I make a fun caveat when, you know, I'm asked about doing drugs and, and all that kind of stuff. I say, well, the first time I tried drugs, I was uh, six years old. Oh, wow. Uh, and my, my, one of my mom's boyfriends was the one that, that brought me into, into a room, held me down, put a bag over my head and, uh, was, you know, their marijuana was, was put in the bag and they were making me inhale. It was not a, a great thing, but that was my childhood in a, a nutshell. Uh, until my dad finally got custody of me and then things started looking up my dad was fantastic uh growing up he let me run and do a lot of things that got me in trouble uh but he really made me understand that as long as you're uh, the way that he puts it uh, if you're a man of your word you take responsibility for your actions the world is yours battle line podcast great interview this episode with nick merrick executive director of green beret racing active duty 19-year military career, 14 years of those in Special Forces as a Green Beret, and 12 deployments, as well as being a current warrant officer. We get into his backstory. We get into the great stuff the organization is doing, so you're going to love this episode. Guys, wherever you're listening, do whatever you can to help our visibility. It really helps because uh, we are sloping a little bit in uh, the rankings, whether it's Apple Podcasts, or on, on YouTube, man, we, we are not doing good on views. So we need your help on that type of stuff. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave us a review. We had some great reviews from you guys in the past. But if you haven't left one, it's been a while since we've gotten reviews on Apple Podcasts. That stuff helps the algorithm. It helps more people hear these great interviews that we're doing. So please do so. If you're on YouTube, you know the drill. Like, subscribe. Leave a comment, even if it's only a comment to help the algorithm. All that stuff helps. And an interview like this, I actually think could really help some veterans in need and could raise some funds for Green Beret Racing. So all of it helps. Really appreciate it. We also just opened up the Battleline Podcast Vault, which is at battlelinepodcast.etsy.com for exclusive merchandise. So we're doing more and more stuff, trying to expand the brand, trying to expand the podcast. And uh, I think we've had some great interviews these past few weeks, and this is another great one. Before we get to it, 70 million Americans have chronic sleep issues, and 50% of Americans deal with sleep deprivation. You've probably dealt with this at some point in your life. Who hasn't, really? But when I still hear people saying they have sleep issues, you really have not tried these supplements from Ned because they have helped me tremendously. Ned is here to help with their incredible new product, Shut Eye Chai. It's inspired by 5,000 years of ancient healing tradition, and it's Ned's biggest product launch to date. It's a mellow super blend latte for sleep that combines adaptogens, aminos, functional mushrooms, and magnesium. Seriously, the best ingredients out there wrapped in a heavenly masala-inspired spiced body. Think cinnamon clove, ginger, all that good stuff. This has such a great taste to it. It's all natural, made exclusively from functional botanicals, fungi, herbs, plants, minerals, roots, and spices. And they share third-party lab reports, testing on all their products. And this particular product, unlike their CBD, of course, does not contain CBD, no caffeine. So any of you with any of those um, issues with, with dairy as well, none of that, um, you're going to love this product. And I throw that out there because a lot of our listeners are uh, 
police officers, law enforcement officers, and you may have to drug test, military, uh, active duty with uh, Shut Eye Chai. You don't have to worry about that because it does not contain CBD. But check out their CBD too. That stuff's great too for sleep. Ned products have helped me perform better and be alert during interviews like these. And we're actually going to have the guys from Ned back on in a couple of weeks. So check out that episode soon. Discover how Shut Eye Chai can revolutionize your sleep and get 15% off using the code BATTLELINE. That's helloned.com slash BATTLELINE, or enter the code BATTLELINE at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash BATTLELINE to get 15% off Sweet Dreams. Check it out. Check out their CBD. You're going to love Ned, and let's get over to Nick. From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Twitch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. The Switch is on Battle Line Podcast. Nick Merrick on with me. Executive Director of Green Beret Racing, active duty, 19-year military career, 14 of those years being as a Green Beret in Special Forces, 12 deployments, uh, current warrant officer. And uh, Nick, before you even like get into your background or anything, I think the thing I, I want to point out is like, as wild as it is and as ridiculous as it sounds, this interview is two years in the making. <laughs> Yeah, we have been trying to get this thing going, but man, the stuff we haven't been able to get to because of your schedule, my schedule, freaking COVID, all this kind of stuff. It just gets in the way. Yeah, our, our mutual friend Jackie Gray connected us and mm -hmm. was like, you got to get this guy on. And the thing that just happens is, and I do end up having to explain it a lot of times to guests, like only doing the show once a week. It's just so hard to lock down. Like, who are these four people we're going to have on every month? And then there's something that'll come up that's like super um, timely or someone who will want to come on where it's like, we have to have this guy on like Jack Carr right. coming on next month or, you know, something like that. And, you know, hearing your story, I was like, got to get this guy on. And usually I would have on Chris with me, especially for a combat veteran. But either way, we're making it work. He's got like a hectic speaking schedule. And I know you have a, a hectic schedule and I appreciate you coming on from a hotel room. So. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing us on. And I, I'm always willing to talk about the organization and what we do. Obviously, I believe in the mission. Uh, so sure. getting a chance to come on and talk about it is is worth holding up in a hotel room and, and doing this. Yeah, what, what are you doing in a hotel room? Is it related to Green Beret Racing? 
Yes, uh, I have a couple really large uh, supporters that are out here on the East Coast. I'm currently traveling out here to to visit them, uh, talk about what's next for Green Beret Racing. And I always feel uh, an in-person uh, connection definitely goes a lot further when you're you're trying to continue what it is that you're doing. Oh, I, I agree fully. Yeah, it's definitely not the same doing something, you know, like we're doing right now on Zoom. There's There's definitely a big difference, I think um having that in-person thing and then you were mentioning covid before and it's like i feel like covid screwed a lot of that up how mm-hmm. everything is now virtual uh nothing is just just like shaking hands and really getting that feeling and and i didn't go to shot show this past year but going to shot show the year before like meeting new people in the industry it's just and 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 really getting to know people it makes a huge difference uh, we're getting away from that a lot within yeah. the, I think just our society in general, everything is really going to remote. We're seeing it and you know, where people are starting to live, they're moving out of the cities again because high-speed internet is everywhere and I can I can do my job from from anywhere. And that's really a, a big part of our, our mission is that human connection that is needed when you uh, you, you don't really have it. Uh, so for, for those in your audience that don't really know what it is that Green Beret Racing does, our mission statement is very ambiguous. We remove the uh, material and monetary barriers that prevent veterans in active duty from getting into competitive sports. It sounds ambiguous, and I wrote it that way for a reason. Uh, as we find that individuals who are going through a big transition period in their life, and whether that be a, a large injury, uh, they're they're leaving their detachment for the first time, as they they go through this period where they have spent so much time diving into uh, what it takes to be a Green Beret and finally getting there and becoming established that they. They leave it, and now what is the, the question? And this is when we see a lot of the, the PTSD, the suicide, addiction, really, really start to creep into the ranks. And uh, by the numbers, uh, a study, and I can provide it to you after the show uh, to put it on there for anybody who'd like to look at it, found that uh, the conventional military sits around 20.3 per 100,000 for the suicide rate as to where special operations is 39.1 per 100,000, so almost wow. double. I um, and and I can... It's it's drastically high, and and I can kind of explain, at least in in my my mind, why that is. So, it takes longer to create a green beret than it does to create a fighter pilot. Um, if you take a, a gentleman who is twenty years old, uh, put him into the army. By the time he becomes just qualified to be on a team, meaning he has his long tab, he has his beret, it's about a three three and a half year process. And I'm talking basic training. Uh, selection and assessment through the entire Q course, language and whatnot. And then he finally gets to a team. So now he's 23, 24 years old. Um, he still can't rent a car in every state. Um, he can barely buy a firearm. Uh, can't, he's barely able to buy alcohol. And now he's going to spend the next two to three years of his life uh, essentially earning his keep on the team before they, they really, truly accept him. So now he's 25, 26 years old. He's going to spend the next three years in that position after he becomes established, and then he'll be a, a senior. Missions will be asked of him. Uh, he'll be given advice, all this kind of stuff, and people will look to him for answers. So now when he he leaves that, and whether it's for another tour, he heads to, back to the school, has to teach or, or something, some broadening assignment. He's now 28, 29 years old, somewhere in that area. Uh, he's going to do a three-year assignment somewhere else, uh, puts him at probably about 32, and then he'll come back to uh to a team for probably two years maybe three years so he spent the vast majority of his life pushing towards this one goal to be on this team and then when you you do this you put everything on hold 
uh, you put yeah. your your hobbies on hold, you put your marriages on hold, your your kids, all of it puts because it's always what's next. What's the thing that the team needs? What's the next mission? And then one day when it's gone, the the team doesn't stop. They move on. It's the next thing that we have to do, and you're kind of stuck. And we find that these individuals find something to fill that gap. And usually it's a negative thing because they don't have the positive thing there. And when I wrote that, that mission statement, I wanted it to be ambiguous because what I've learned is the difference might be that I love motorsports and you love mountain climbing, but the demons that we're fighting might be the same thing. So how about we just find what it is that you love to do and what I love to do, and we can tackle those problems. You know, we don't do interventions. We do lifestyle changes. And it's... Uh, it's about providing something for that individual, a positive reason for him to set his alarm clock so he wakes up and wants to do something. And in the, the current military culture, when we come back from a deployment, we know what questions are going to be asked. How many drinks do you have per night? You know, and if it's too high, the number on that thing, then you're going to be asked to see a counselor. And if they feel that you're a, a potential problem, they'll remove you from the team. Uh, to, to get counseling. The same thing with sleep and aches and pains. And if you look at us on paper, we're all you know, absolute specimens, but it's because we, we know what questions they are and, and we will sacrifice ourselves to no end to keep doing this job. And then when it's gone, there's no sacrifice and you're just left with the broken pieces. So we really strive to find what is it that you would like to do? So what, what form of competition? Because that's what got us into this line of work. At some point you said, yeah, I could, I could come in the military and I, I'd, I'd be fine, but I'm going to go try out special operations. That seems like it's something... And, and you have to you have to be a little crazy to want to do that. You absolutely have to be crazy to to do some of the stuff that that they ask us to do, or at least not in the common uh, the common place that the average person is uh, a building full of people with guns, and you saying, "Yeah, sure, let's go in yeah. there and say hi to them." Isn't a normal response, much less, "Hey, it's pitch black out. Let's jump out of a plane at thirty thousand feet." None of that makes any sense. So our our solution to these problems are are a little bit unconventional, and that. Let's not sit them down on a couch and ask them how he's doing. Instead, there was a, a moniker that we're using is our therapy happens behind a wrench and giving you something to do with your hands uh, to let your mind kind of wander is a place that we've seen a lot of success. Hey, I was wondering through Jackie Gray, do you know by any chance like Leo Jenkins and Nick Betts? Because they did that uh, with Brandon Webb. They did that Big Mountain Heroes documentary and the uh, the like subtitle of Big Mountain Heroes was Thrills Before Pills. And it seems to be like that same philosophy, which isn't to say, you know, like I we had a guy on last week, uh, Richard Ostoff, who has, you know, several like mental issues that he was very open about going on. And he's like, look, if I'm not on medication, I know that I have a downward spiral. And there's there's guys who need to be on medication. So it's not to say everyone should just get off their medication if they are struggling with certain things. But there's definitely like there's there's definitely a group of guys in military in special operations who it seems like they probably just need to do what you're doing get out there be competitive have a new goal and maybe not be medicated yeah it's it's a lot of what we're we're finding out and and when i originally founded the organization it was built on desert racing so in 2020 i was able to race the mid 400 largest off road race in north america and I didn't know a thing about it. Um, and this was, I, the, I, I just want to stop you because I watched like the stuff that you sent me and I see that you, I saw the video of you in the mint 400 
uh, doing the, the like motorcycle racing. So when you say racing, you talk, cause I know Green Beret racing covers all of it. Are we talking car racing or, or are you oh, just yeah. a pure motorbike guy? Uh, to me, that's my medicine is I like to be, I like to be on two wheels. Uh, nice. I like to go. It's something that makes me, you know, a little uneasy at times because I didn't grow up riding on motorcycles. So getting out there and kind of pushing that machine, I'm definitely the limiting factor on the machine, not the other way around. Um, when we did that race, that was actually on four wheels. It was in the UTV. Uh, we raced in our military class. You know, was, there was uh, Coast Guard, Air Force, uh, Navy guys. There were some other veteran teams out there. And we, we took third in it. But the, the next day, my co-driver looked at me. Uh, we're eating pancakes at some roadside diner, both tired as could be from a 12 hour race. We had nothing to, we had, we knew nothing about my cell phone was taped to the dash. That was our, our navigation system. Our water bottles were, were those like you would use in, in hockey with the big long tubes on them that, uh, we'd stick inside our helmets. We didn't know a thing of what we were getting into. And, uh, <laughs> he's an accessible man by, by all accounts, uh, married for 23 years. Kids are off in the military or in college has his own business, works for clock. And he decided that to, to confide in me at that point that, that he needed something like that. Um, so originally it was supposed to be desert racing. And then, uh, we found out how expensive desert racing truly is. Uh, so we started branching out to, to dirt bikes and street bikes, and then it became marathon running and guys that want to do Spartan races. And then, uh, one day we got a call from a, a jujitsu uh, gi manufacturer, Moya brand, you know, Jesse called me up and he said, Hey, I would really love to, to help you guys out. Do you have a jujitsu team? And I said, I don't, but I can, I can make one. And I started making phone calls around and I ended up talking to guys in different groups that wanted to, to be a part of it. And then it really dawned on us that the, the medicine, the, the racing is really not what it is. It's really competition. Yeah. And since then, I've brought on Marines, Air Force, Navy. Um, I have team wives that are now racing under us, and we're, we're expanding well beyond. So that the name actually Green Bray Racing doesn't really apply in any aspect anymore, except that we do have Green Brays that race. But now I have people that are not associated with either of those doing things with us. And it's really a drive behind the finding purpose to fight a thing. And whatever your purpose is and whatever the thing is you're fighting is are irrelevant to us. We're going to raise funds. We're going to push you to, to do it. And we're going to put you in a community of people that love to do it as well. Does, does it make you think you're going to rebrand at some point, maybe to like a, just special operations at large name or something like that special operations competition? I mean, obviously you think of a better name, but uh, now that it's expanded, because you have to explain to people with your statement, mm -hmm. like, this is what we do. And Green Beret Racing, it, it means one specific thing. Uh, actually, a couple of days ago, I got the the slide deck in for the the rebranding that I've been working on. But I'm gonna I'm gonna move to a, a little bit different of a system. So originally, I I never intended for it to say just as just with Green Berets. You know, I, I've been a Green Beret at that time. I've been a Green Beret for 12 years, 13 years, and I knew what struggles our community had. Um, you know, I was in the infantry before, but understanding what you know what the the plights are of of the soft community came easy to me because I was, you know, entrenched in it or still am. Uh, and I didn't know, you know, the, the term I often use, I, I didn't know what a, a submariner goes with. Uh, I'm sure they get concussions from banging their head on things in the submarine and they probably have a vitamin D uh, <laughs> deficiency. deficiency. But outside yeah. of that, I, I don't know what they go through. So instead of trying to figure out the humans and the system, 
needed to, to make them better. I, I was just going to rely on knowing already what Green Berets need uh, and then expand it later. So I'm going to take the Green Beret racing model and I'm going to expand it into the competitive design group. Um, that's going to be all the military branches uh, will have their own dedicated team, as well as a police, fire, and EMS team. Now, these teams are going to compete against each other inside pre-existing race series. So as they show up, like I said, we don't do life, uh, we don't do um, uh, events or experiences. We do the lifestyle change. So now it's going to be a season-long competition to where you can show up and you say, oh, man, there's these Navy guys again. Like, let's, let's show up and beat them. Or, oh, yeah, of course the police are going to show up and we're getting ready to go fast, kind of. But the, the, the common jokes that we have with everybody that works on what we would call, you know, the front line, the first line kind of stuff and make a, a bigger community to fight the problems that we're all seeing. Because right underneath that, that number I mentioned before, the 20.3 is the fire, it's EMS, you know, it's police right there. And we want to pull them in because they're doing a job that I don't think they get enough respect for, one that I certainly don't want to do. And, you know, especially special operations people are crazy. That's a job that not many of us say, man, I, I want to, especially with this current climate. Yeah. No, that's true, man. You know what I wanted to ask you about is, and I'm sure other people are wondering, how do you balance being an active duty guy and also being the executive director of this 501c3? I mean, I feel like that's a lot on your plate. Yeah, it, it certainly is. It comes down to trips. Um, I'm on lots of phone calls, lots of emails, but I have a wonderful team behind me. Uh, it's taken a while to, to find them. Uh, my operations officer, Brittany, is an absolute, uh, I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. She's just, she's going to hear me praising her. And I told her I never would, but uh, she's doing fantastic. She's the the bulldog in the background that's, that's out there um, getting after my directors and making sure deadlines are met. You know, and I have people that, that volunteer just simply to take care of the fleet uh, of vehicles. And we had a building donated to us recently that uh, is now our headquarters building. So we have a, a central hub now in Colorado Springs. And these people that just keep showing up and they keep me, they, they keep me driven and honest, you know, in days that I, I want to just sit on the couch and say, man, I'm tired. I, I, I can't do it right now, or I don't want to do it. You know, I'll get a, a text message from, you know, from my, I call her my merch czar. Uh, mm -hmm. She handles all of our swag and uh, deals with, you know, getting these shirts created and getting them shipped out and putting them online. You know, she'll text, Hey, you know, where's this at? What's my budget for this? And it'll pull me out of that. Uh, I kind of, I'm tired kind of thing. So it's certainly not me. Uh, it's, it's the people that I have behind me that are helping me push this organization forward that allows me to run it at, you know, first emails out at 4.30 in the morning. Last ones are at 11 PM, um, depending on the days. And it's really, it's them that's helping me do it. Yeah. And the merch is badass, which you're rocking right now. Um, I want to get into your background a little bit, you know, because we spoke a lot about the organization at large. Uh, just you specifically, what what is your uh, growing up and, and what made you want to become a Green Beret? You know, we, we spoke earlier about how you kind of have to have some something a little crazy. And I think when I speak to guys who are either Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, Green Berets, they have some type of backstory of that. They, they wanted to prove people wrong. They were, you know, bullied in school. And it's, it, it's, it's always something different for each individual guy. And I never get tired of hearing these stories. And I don't think the audience does either. Uh, so growing up, not a, as most special operation guys, not a, not a childhood that you would particularly 
uh, you'll share around the dinner table with, with, you know, with family and friends. Um, I, I decided to join the army, uh, right before my senior year. Didn't really think I had much of a future, uh, in my, my small town. And I certainly didn't want to stay, you know, my dad wasn't going to be able to pay for college for me. So, and this is, this is Colorado. You grew up in Colorado. Uh, I grew up in Iowa, Iowa. Okay. Yeah. Small town, Iowa, not a, not a lot going on there. Um, love the people I grew up with. I, I wouldn't change uh, changed that at all, but I'd always wanted to go just see more. So uh, I joined the army, uh, ended up going to Fort Wainwright, Alaska, right out the gate. And I didn't have a ton of friends, uh, people that I would consider close in the infantry. Uh, not a lot of views seemed to, to line up while everybody was, was out drinking. I was out in the mountains, climbing and hiking and, and having a good time. I was in JRTC, the national training center down at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Uh, and this is 2004. And we're prepping to go to Iraq. And I remember I'm in all of this heavy, just infantry gear. You got the, the, the laser gun fighting system on you, the miles gear. But I'm sweating to no end. And we turn around this, we drive around this corner. And I remember seeing these dudes with beards and these little UDT Ranger panties laying out on the hood of their Humvees tanning. And I was like, who are these dudes? Like they are having way more fun than I am. And somebody said, oh, those are probably SF guys. And at the point, I really didn't know what truly what SF was. You know, you always hear about it. But um, I said, well, I think that's what I want to go do. Um, just because simply I was not having fun in the infantry. Um, There's no place to think. There's no place to question or, or input ideas. Everything was top-down directed. And the more I, I got into to researching it, the more I got a chance to, to work with uh, I actually worked in third group uh, ODA while I was in Iraq. The more I realized that it's an organization that's built on, hey, let's let's see what guys think and, and drive the mission uh, somewhat more from the bottom up. And I went to, to selection sh uh, shortly after that trip, uh, 2005, 2006 in Iraq. And I really haven't looked back since. Wow. Uh, it's been a, an organization that definitely asks what your opinion is. It's not always taken, uh, but... There's a whole lot more autonomy put on an individual to go in and do what it is that they think is right. I'm just curious now when you say like your background growing up is something that people wouldn't envy, something you probably don't get into often. I mean, is there anything you could say about it? Um, my mother wouldn't have won Mother of the Year award um, really at, at any point as, as I was growing up. You know, and I... I got into it a little bit on a, a different podcast, but um, I make a fun caveat when, you know, I'm asked about doing drugs and, and all that kind of stuff. I say, well, the first time I tried drugs, I was uh, six years old. Oh, wow. Uh, and my, my, one of my mom's boyfriends was the one that, that brought me into, into a room, held me down, put a bag over my head and uh, was, you know, their marijuana was, was put in the bag and they were making me a nail. It was not a, a great thing, but that was my childhood in a, a nutshell uh, until my dad finally got custody of me and then things started looking up. My dad was fantastic uh, growing up. He let me run and do a lot of things that got me in trouble. Uh, but he really made me understand that as long as you're uh, the way that he puts it, uh, if you're a man of your word, you take responsibility for your actions. The world is yours. And Holy shit, man. I mean, that's a, that's a crazy story, but I, I feel like so many successful people have, these like really unspeakable stories growing up like that. And I would just think for you, do you think it inspired you to be Green Beret? Was it like, I'm helpless in this moment. 
and I wish I could beat this guy up, but there's nothing I could do. Did that drive you to be a guy who's like, I am going to become a guy who could be a protector and, and stand up to bullies or stand up to anyone doing wrong hmm. to children? You know, I haven't really thought of it in that, that realm. I, I do know that there are, there's very few situations now that I feel helpless in. And, and if anything, I have a, I have a pretty solid drive behind me to figure things out. You know, I, I don't know how to start an organization uh, like Green Beret Racing, uh, much less run a nonprofit. But I'll, I'll tell you, I have done a lot more reading, a lot of research, asked questions and figured it out. And, and we have momentum beyond anything that I ever would have thought we could have. And things are happening that I never thought, you know, would have happened when I, I started the organization. And some of that probably has to do with being in situations where I was powerless or, or didn't know how to get out of. And it's, I mean, it's a heck of an adventure now. Yeah. And, and it probably it makes you a better mentor to younger guys, younger Green Berets who you need to speak with, who are getting involved in the organization, who have some type of trauma, some type of backstory that they're going through, where they're saying, in, in the worst of cases, I feel like ending it all. And your organization could be the thing that changes that fork in the road that they are inspired to do something new and to move on to new challenges. It, it's, I've had a lot of really great phone calls, uh, in-person interactions with, with individuals that are just not doing well. Um, everything from grown men that I've been in firefights with to, to individuals that I, I had never met in person and, and getting on phone calls with them and really not giving them the, the excuse, uh, if you will, to say, yeah, he agrees. My life is tough. And, and I use none of my background on it. Uh, most of it just rarely really comes out. But I think uh, an individual, I, to give you one example, um, uh, an individual that had been volunteering for us uh, was going through a really tough time. You know, his family had left. Uh, he didn't have his kids. And he was in a pretty hard place. And I talked to him, uh, knowing that he was, and I told him, I was like, hey, man, you got 24 hours. Get out of your system. You know, because no matter how 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 good we think we are doing uh, towards a person, when you're in pain, you are in pain, and you don't really listen to to logic. It's emotion. And so, hey, go get out of your system. Call me tomorrow. I wasn't worried that he was going to do anything bad. Uh, well, the next day, uh, he calls me up. I hear he's hung over on the phone. And I don't chastise him for it. It's not my place. You know, I've sure. been there. I've yeah. had my wife leave me and head to Texas right before deployment with my kids and put me in a horrible place. Um, it, it spurred a lot more of where I am now. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. Um, but uh, so he's on the phone. I said, all right, you know, what do you got going on today? He says, well, I got to take care of the, the property. We got the animals. Uh, so I got chores. I probably won't be able to help you out with stuff today. I said, okay. In my mind, I said, all right, I know he has work to do. Um, a couple hours goes by and I get a phone call that he's sitting at a, a bar and he is getting drunk. So I have someone drop me off at the bar, I walk in and he looks up at me and I could see the look in his eyes. And he does a, oh crap, like he wasn't supposed to know. Um, so I walk up and I get his keys, I pay his tab. We walk out, we get in the truck. I tell him, I say, you know, man, I'm not going to tell you that getting drunk is the wrong answer. I'm not going to tell you that going in and you know, taking every idea of a good time and acting on it is a, is a bad idea. 
what I'm going to tell you is that I have work that I need done. You know, we have a couple projects that need to be completed and I simply don't have the manpower to do it right now. So tell me where I'm spending money and we're going to do it. Um, and then I dropped him off at home and I put him, uh, I called him the next day and I reinforced it. Uh, the day after that, I was getting ready to leave for an event. I stopped in to get a bunch of swag to, to hand out at the event. And he was in there doing work. He had a beer can in his hand. You know, I could tell that he was, he was doing something, but when it comes down to it and the, we have this thought, is it healthy for him to be drinking at that time? No, it's not. Is it more healthy for you to take away every vice that he has without a purpose? I would argue that that's probably a, a far worse of a thing. So if I can get him working with a purpose and he still has a beer in his hand, I can tackle that later. I, I can tackle alcohol consumption, but without that purpose, he's just a lost soul drifting and he's going to find a very negative way to, to take that out. And whether that's violence on, on someone, on himself, uh, whether it's he goes on a really hard bender, that's, that is a far worse outcome than him being productive on a project while drinking. I hope you're all enjoying this interview with Nick Merrick. I certainly enjoyed conducting it, and I didn't know what to expect. Nick is not a guy that I knew going into this interview. We just had mutual friends, and I was very impressed, and uh, I, I learned a lot, learned a great deal about the organization, and needless to say, Green Beret Racing is an organization I plan on helping out in the future, and definitely a great place if you're looking for a military charity, special operations charity. Check them out as we talk about further on the podcast. But before we continue, Fort Scott Munitions, they're on with us every episode. They're a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition that's designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. You guys know this by now. Plenty of you shoot with them, but if you haven't, you got to check them out. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC-spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states, but you get a great discount when you use us on the website. That's fsm.com. And all you have to do is use the promo code BATTLELINE. You'll get 15% off. They've got these great tins. Now that I'm shooting uh, this part in high res, you can see here, this is the Fort Scott Munition 9mm 80 grain. Um, they may still have more Battleline Tactical tins on there, and those are signed by Tonto. Check them out. Uh, once again, FSM.com, promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and the Battleline Podcast. And as I always say, we're talking ammo. We got to talk night vision. I hear all the time from people, what's the best night vision to get? And the truth is, you're not going to find it in sporting goods stores. You do have to go with that premium product if you want something that's trusted by law enforcement, by people in Border Patrol now, and special operations and military veterans. Look no further than Photonis Defense. Now you can have the superpower to see in the dark with the Viper Binocular Night Vision System by Photonis Defense, which is the global leader in night vision solutions, providing more high-quality night vision capabilities than anyone. 
military, law enforcement, and public safety end users utilize photonist defense solutions to give them the edge at night in tactical situations and rescue operations. Hunters, shooters, boaters, and enthusiasts can rely on the photonist defense Viper binocular to become masters of darkness. The new Viper binocular system carries the same features and benefits as the photonist defense Viper monocular with a ruggedized body and harnesses the power of the echo intensifier tubes, giving you sharper images and reduced halo, as well as industry-leading ultra-fast auto-gating across the range of dynamic operating conditions. So all you got to do, guys, go to photonistdefense.com, P-H-O-T-O-N-I-S, defense.com, or go to your local night vision dealer and ask them if they have photonist defense. If they don't get it in stock, it is worth checking out. You're going to love them. Photonistdefense.com. Tonto has done training courses with Phil Otto and Fort Scott with this. And even the people from Fort Scott Munitions, like Ryan Kraft, they got on board. They had other night vision. They were like, after they you know did the test next to each other, they said, why am I not using photonist? This is a no-brainer. I got to make the uh, make the investment into having this equipment. So check it out. And with that, let's get back to the interview with Nick Merrick. That makes sense to me. And it sounds far more productive than the all or nothing approach. Because then if a guy is like, not only am I going through this rough patch, I've also lost my livelihood. I've lost all purpose. Mm-hmm. That's when it could be a really slippery slope. It's like at the same time, though, if you gave that guy some type of ultimatum, and he's still just getting hammered, not being productive. It's like at a certain point, no matter what happens to this guy, I guess you kind of have to let them go and and make their mistakes, right? Yeah, and that's I think that's one of the beauties of where our organization is going. You know, we just had a, a generous donor just gave us a 1967 Buick GS. Car needs a lot of work done to it. And I have guys that don't know how to do work on vehicles. And I have guys that they are certified, you know, badass mechanics and putting them together. And it's often a, a question, well, I don't know how to do that. Yeah, uh, I got guys that do and you have hands that work. Are you willing to learn? And watching them show up to, to be like, yeah, I, I don't know what this is, but you're teaching me how to do it and see them kind of relax. And, and one of the ways that I find an organization works really well is if I have a, a Green Beret that's shown up, you know, he has 18 years in, uh, you know, or maybe he just retired and he wants to get into, say, dirt bike riding. I could bring out, you know, Eli, uh, Eli Tomac, and who's the best rider in the world for uh, for short course dirt bike stuff. And he could look at this guy and say, hey, you're you're looking scared riding through that turn. That Green Beret, that SEAL, that Marsat guy, they're going to get defensive because you can't tell a special operations guy, hey, you're scared because... This is what we do. We run into combat. This is it's why we're at the forefront. It's why everything is, is you know, dramatized with special operations. It, because for the past 20 years, that's who's been at the forefront of, you know, 80% of everything, even though we make up less than 1% of the military. So you can't talk to a guy like that unless you have similar experiences. Whereas a guy like myself, I can look at him and say, yeah, me too. I, I know exactly what you do because I've, I've been there next to you. You still look scared in that turn. And we can give them a little bit different of a push and direction. And we have the ability to bring in, you know, professionals and, and really uh, prominent athletes to be able to talk and say, hey, this is how we do things better with both sides of the coin being uh, being taken. 
I'm, I'm wondering with your group, your organization, you're speaking about how guys coming back from combat and deployment, they need that competition in their life. They need something that's a little bit more high adrenaline to get them motivated, to get them out of any funk and to transition back into civilian life. Um, so I know it's it's more about the outlet than about being the greatest, but I'm just curious, is there anyone in your organization that you think is like a top athlete that's going to go really far beyond just Green Beret racing? Oh, absolutely. I, I have some guys that do stuff. Uh, I, so last year, uh, we helped fund an individual to climb Everest and he did almost all of it without supplemental oxygen. Wow. Um, this is also a guy that does 240 mile marathons. He took seventh in the last one that he did. I shouldn't say ultra marathons. 240 miles. Wow. I got a dirt bike. I got a car. If I need to go 240 miles, I'm driving, but this is what yeah. he loves. And it, it goes more into our mission statement of well, whatever it is that you need. Cause if he comes to me and I say, you have to get on a dirt bike. And he's like, I, I'm not into that. Well, what do I do? Do I just turn him away? You know, instead I'd rather be able to provide him with what he needs. So um, he's an individual. He's actually leading a team up uh, Denali. Uh, they leave at the end of May. Uh, there's five people on his team to include himself. And two of them have never attempted uh, a mountain that high. And the other two are, are mountaineers, trained mountaineers with him. But they're, and this, so this is why I, this is a great example of why I say we don't do experiences. So I've been a part of their group chat for four months now, uh, since we, we, we incepted this. And the initial thing was just laughing and joking. Hey, you know, guys, I'm going over here and I'm doing this. And it'd be just a bunch of jokes and cracks and whatnot. And then at one point, all of them kind of realized that this is a serious thing. You know, Denali has taken 128 lives. It's no joke. It has more of a vertical climb uh, from base camp to summit than Everest does. It's a wow. serious mountain. Uh, and something changed in their chat. And it went from funny YouTube videos and reels they would find on Instagram to Hey, check out this dietary consideration, guys. Or, hey, I'm reading this book about, you know, what the, the North Face looks like or, you know, the South approach looks like. And they were starting to talk about gear and they were talking about sleep and work cycles and what training they're supposed to be doing. And they started coordinating where they're going to be together. And there was a drastic shift that I noticed in it. And that's eight months of prep to get to this mountain to do one thing. And the hope is that you can summit. And after they leave that mountain, if you were to tell me that they're just going to go back to being who they were, hanging out, doing it, I that's laughable. They say, what, it's six weeks to create a habit or something like that? Yeah. Uh, 21 days to create a habit, like six weeks to make it. Well, this is eight months. So this is a lifestyle change that each of these are, are, are legitimately doing. Stuff that's outside of our budget that's like, well, this is just something we need and I'm going to go do. Um, so he's actually leading that team. Uh, Jason, he's on a couple of podcasts. We've gotten him on to some to, to talk about it, but he's a, nice. he's a legit world-class athlete that I would put up there with any mountaineer in the world. And what, what's his military background? Uh, he's actually the, uh, the lead instructor for the special operations mountaineering school. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, he is very serious about this stuff. Uh, when he first came to us, uh, I only knew that he did ultra marathoning. Uh, and I was like, yeah, dude, we'll, we'll sponsor you. We'll, you know, we'll, we created a couple different shirts for him and, and clothing lines. Uh, Cause I guess running that far is the wrong clo clothing can chafe you. What? No, don't run that far. <laughs> but, um, and then I found out that he was trying to climb Everest and he was actually talking about putting a second mortgage on his house, you know, selling all of his possessions. And I was like, Whoa, like if this is something that's that important to you, like, 
let us help you fundraise. Uh, and we were able to, to cover almost half the cost through our, our fundraising attempts with him. Um, and his family helped out a ton with that. There's a wonderful support system behind him. So it's, it's interesting to see what links guys will go to, to, to pursue their passions and how we can step in and help. Yeah. And, and when you're talking about how it forms habits in guys, they come back changed after an experience like this. Uh, it's, it's reminding me of, and it's like the type of thing you see on Instagram, people say, and it might be cliche, but it really is true that like, if doctors could prescribe guys and, and women and especially people in combat, like, and as someone who's seen national parks and stuff like that, get outside, go to a national park, get involved in racing, get involved in competition. I think for a lot of people, once again, not everybody, some people need to be medicated. I'm not, I'm not saying uh, a blanket statement, but I think for a huge portion just doing something like that would be a world of difference instead of I'm depressed. And it's, I know in my, in my case, right. As someone who's gone through therapy, that's not a veteran. I've never been on medication for that type of stuff, but it's so easy to go to a doctor and get prescribed medication and not really look into underlying issues. And like, maybe your life is just not that exciting right now. And that's why you feel bored or depressed. Yeah. We, we have a tendency to, to put people in this country on medication quickly is the answer. And as you said, it's not treating an underlying condition. And I don't necessarily think it's about adrenaline seeking. Um, some of us, we need it. You know, I definitely don't want to be in the pits. I want to be behind the wheel or behind the, you know, the throttle of a, a given machine. However, I've worked pits for our guys and, and helped out with, you know, pit stops and, and all that kind of stuff, or been, you know, the crew chief for, uh, or the pit boss for you know, our UTV ripping in the mint. Um, but I, I've talked to guys that have, have told me, hey, I'm going through this and I'm going through that. Uh, I need something. And telling them, hey, you know, do you want to go race this? I'll put you behind the wheel of our, of our Razor or I'll put you on a dirt bike or you know, we can get one of the, the guys out here to loan you their, their time at Tower. And then flat out saying, no, I have no desire to, to drive. Um, but then I say, well, what if I got you in the pit for a, a trophy truck? Uh, and you could, you could help work on that, you know, this million dollar, wonderfully engineered vehicle and then say, okay, I hear them stop the, the emotional roller coaster they're on and say, tell me when, tell me where that is something I'm interested in. So I don't necessarily think it's adrenaline. Some need it, you know, just same thing. Some people need medication because there's a hormone imbalance or a, there's something going on inside of them that is in their control. I really think it's just purpose. Why are you waking up? Nobody wakes up to go to work. That is not, you know, maybe it's your first day at work. Sure. Maybe there's a big project that you've been working for. Sure. But just to go to work on the average day, nobody sets their alarm clock and wakes up before it says, man, I'm really excited today. Um, but if there's a race, you know, if there's something that needs to happen and the whole, whole whole thing behind our mission is playing for time. You know, Steve Harvey has a great, uh, great thing he talks about where he said, you know, he's didn't want to take a gig down in Florida and everything is playing for time. But eventually, you know, he almost hung it up. He almost called it quits. And then two weeks later, he got a phone call about a gig that set off his entire career. And, and I think that's just right for all of us, especially when we talk about suicide. I wonder what wonder is if it was family feud now that you're, you know, mentioning. I wonder yeah, I think all, ultimately leads to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it's playing for time. You know, the, the universe works in weird ways and yeah. uh, the next big thing could, you know, the next big thing for either of us could be right after this call 
uh, have the text messages that have come through. So the, the thought is not, the theory behind our mission is not saying, I'm going to get you off drugs right now. It is, how about I give you a reason to go to the gym tomorrow and which changes your habits today? You know, how about you say, yeah, I, I absolutely, I'm fed up with life. I hate every ounce of it. I'm in pain. This isn't cool. I, I, maybe I will, maybe I will end it all, but I'm going to do it after the next big race, you know, the next big race is in three weeks and those dudes need me, you know, the, the truck doesn't leave the pit without me. And then after that, I'll do it. Well, that's three weeks. We just, we just got instead of that guy that's pretty committed to it right now. And the, the current method that we're going about it. And to me, it almost feels like virtue signaling is, yeah. Hey, I did 22 pushups for a guy. You know, I did 22 pushups a day for veteran suicide. Yep. Yeah, cool. I, I don't know a single veteran that has said, man, I was going to kill myself, but you know, I saw, you know, Tim Johnson, you know, four, eight, five on, you know, on Instagram doing 22 pushups. And I thought to myself, yeah, and maybe not today. I, I don't know one. And I'm happy that it's raising awareness and it has its place, but the current system doesn't do it. It is 20, you know, 22 pushups a day, you know, put something up on your Instagram, put a, a banner or whatever. And then the other one is see something, say something. And I can tell you this, Ian, we are a trained society for, you know, we're trained for action. And that's especially the special operations community. And there's guys, it's the most common thing that you hear. I didn't see any signs. I didn't know. And these are people that you're intimate with. You are in foxholes with them, you know, going into buildings with people shooting at you. And if those guys don't know that you were about to do it, nobody would have. So the see something, say something that can't work either because it's a, it's a determination. This is what I'm going to do. And I, I've heard a lot of horror stories about guys that have committed suicide and nobody knew. Well, let's play for time then, because obviously the current thing isn't working. Let's find a purpose that that guy can say, well, I, you know, maybe I'm addicted to pills, but the pills don't make me feel good in the morning. So maybe I'm, I'm going to fight my hardest to not do it. Or maybe I will reach out for help. Or maybe it says, I, I have a workout or I have a, a race this weekend and I need to be hydrated, not dehydrated. So maybe, maybe instead of 12 beers tonight, maybe I have 10. That's a victory. That's a conscious victory. That isn't a lack of ability to drink 12 that isn't he didn't have it wasn't the funding that he didn't have it wasn't somebody interrupted and got in there and now he resents it he consciously decided and that's a big deal if he always said goes from 12 to 10 what, ha what happens next time maybe it's 10 to 8 and now he's doing it without consciously knowing that he's doing it and that's that's what we do we we don't throw it in their face we don't try to make fun of them or make light of it and we have stepped in in some pretty hard situations, but it's all about a positive reason to set that alarm clock. Why are you getting up? And if it's to help someone else, cool. If it's to help yourself, cool. If it's to, I just want to hear these cars start, cool. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. And look, as someone who's not a veteran, but as the privilege of talking with a lot of guys in special operations, the thing that I could relate with what you said earlier is that when you said your life could change, you said after this call, something could happen that could change the trajectory of our lives. And that reminds me of, we were talking about COVID earlier and lockdowns, why you saw a suicide rate skyrocket among veterans and among everybody, because I think it took that spontaneity out of life. You know, if everything you're doing is from your home, you're not outside talking to people, 
Um, yeah, I think that 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 part of life completely got taken away from people going to the gym, just having these like great interactions with people meeting someone who inspires you. I mean, I don't usually get in my personal life on here. But like, the other day, right, I was I was randomly getting a haircut at the place that I always go to in New York City. And there was this girl that I thought was super hot, who was like the receptionist there, sparked a conversation. I'm going to end up meeting up with her. We'll see where it goes. But like during COVID, every, yeah, well, sure. But it's like, I bring it up because during COVID, everything was on here. Everything was just yep. on your phone. There was none of that, like that, that zest for life that we should all have to get outside. And I never know who I'm going to meet today. I never know what situation is going to happen. And I certainly, right, as a non-veteran, got into that same funk where it was like, man, every day is the fucking same. There's nothing new happening here. And mm -hmm. I can totally understand how someone who may have a slight alcohol problem or a drug problem, it spirals out of control because of that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yo, we, it, it brings a, so our third Mint 400 that we did, which we're getting ready to do our fourth. Uh, the first one, it was myself, my co-driver, someone else's vehicle, someone else's, you know, racing gear, someone else made our pit, someone else paid our entry. The second one, we had four guys there. We were able to pay our entry, but everything else was provided for us. The third one, Polaris donated a vehicle to us. Um, we paid for the entry. Uh, we had four dirt bikes that raced in it. We had, we manned all of our pits. I had 16 people down there. It was huge. We, uh, we ended up actually helping professional race teams do stuff in their pits because they were running into some problems that they couldn't man with their, their crew. And because we had to get the vehicle to code, it was delivered to Vegas. Um, so we met it down there and we had to weld the cage on, you know, we had to rework the suspension, put in new seats, put in the pumper, change out the, you know, the radio systems and just a ton of things to make it race ready. As well as get the vehicles ready, we had to get things wrapped and powder coated and all this kind of stuff. We got there about four days before the parade. Um, and we worked from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. every day. Uh, and this includes during the race. It was a eight-day barn burner. And we never once went out. We didn't go out to eat. Uh, somebody shuttling and bringing us food. No, they never once went to the casinos, uh, never went to the bars, anything like that. And my operations officer was actually, dude, you need to like lighten up on these guys. And I was like, I would love to. I, I would, but mm -hmm. we don't race unless this happens. Um, and I remember we failed tech inspection the first time, uh, the pre-inspection. So that vehicle goes back out and they're welding on this thing. And it's 1030 at night and they're welding on it. Uh, just to get it ready. Well, the final race, uh, the final race gets done at about 8 p.m. on a Saturday. We head back to the to the main shop that we were uh, we were allowed to put our stuff in. We pack everything up. You know, we're pulling stuff in from the other the satellite pits, and we're divvying it out and putting it back into stuff that people brought down. We're loading the trailer up, and I, you know, I went. I bought a case of beer for everybody, and we toasted. And you know, I told them that how much I appreciated it, and every single one of them individually came up to me and said thank you. This was an amazing experience. And I think that really goes into that, that same thought there. And when you're doing Zoom, when everything is at remote, it's at distance, there isn't that personal connection. And here we're in the, you know, we're in Sin City, if you will, a place where you're supposed to go out and let loose. And they were chained to work and working the entire time. And every single one of them had a blast, loved it. Some of them didn't even get a race. They just worked in the pits. And they they loved it because it's it's a bigger purpose. And you know, I'm brought back to the uh, the Daytona 500 this weekend. 
you know, the, the guy that won, forget his name, Kevin Steinhaus or something like that. Um, watching when he crossed the finish line, his entire pit erupted. And they all jump in and they're screaming and hitting each other and they run out onto the track. Not a single one of them drove that car. Yet they're extremely excited because it's a bigger purpose. It's a reason that they were waking up to, to get that car going. It's the same reason our guys were waking up at, you know, 4 30, 5 o'clock in the morning to, to leave to listen to me drone on about what media footage we needed, you know, what needed to be done on the vehicle that day, what tech inspection was coming up, or what big event we were going to, and then get back to the house at 11. And here we do the exact same thing. It's it's that purpose. And I'm, I'm a firm believer that we're one, we're tribal. And two, we're, we're the kind of people that need to have a reason to leave what we're in, leave the, the safety of our home to, to venture out into the world and see what is there for the taking. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I didn't get a chance to ask you, uh, how did you personally get into motorcycles, dirt biking, all, all of that? Um, so when I, I passed selection, I, uh, so I grew up, uh, ripping snowmobiles. Uh, we had five of them, you know, farm in Iowa, just tons of room to, to go. And then joined the army kind of don't really get back into them until after I finished selection. And I thought to myself, the stereotypical SF guy has a motorcycle. So I'm going to buy a motorcycle. I bought one. I didn't know how to ride it. I actually bought it pretty much sight unseen. Um, I didn't know what side to shift. I knew nothing about it, but you know, screw it. I'll figure it out. Uh, so I bought a motorcycle, uh, really got into enjoying it. And then uh my my ex was pretty i don't want to say i don't want to talk bad about her she's a we have a great relationship now she's a wonderful mother sure. we had our differences and, and one of them uh being she didn't like when i went to to ride or hang out with my friends outside of work because i spent so much time at work deploying and and whatnot so i ended up shelving a lot of those hobbies and then after we got divorced after I did that race, I decided, screw it. I'm going to get a dirt bike. I'm going to figure it out. I know how to ride. Not really on a dirt bike, but let's figure it out. Um, so I, I bought a dirt bike and I just went down and I entered a race. Um, had no clue what I was getting into. was an absolute terrible experience because I <laughs> my technique was terrible. Um, I wasn't in riding shape. And for, for those out there listening, they think, oh, man, it's just a, a motorcycle. You know, the engine's doing all the work. You are sadly mistaken. Um, there is so much that goes into weight shifting, uh, how much you're gripping, how much you're not and pushing and pulling on the bike that it's a, well, it was one of the worst workouts in my life and it was only an hour and a half. Um, wow. so I, I got into it because I, I needed something, something that I could pour myself into a little bit that wasn't, Oh, I'm going to remodel my kitchen kind of thing, um, that I could reasonably sit down and, and do and dirt bike riding really became that for me you know i i grew up in a family full of mechanics so understanding how they how they work and how to replace parts and and whatnot was really right inside my wheelhouse it wasn't restoring something so i didn't have to dump thousands upon thousands of dollars in it you know i bought a 2007 uh ktm this was an older bike and it needed some love and i found it very uh therapeutic if you will to just sit in my, my garage with my headphones on and listen to whatever it is that I wanted to listen to and just kind of zone out behind a, behind a wrench. And it was a great, a great tool for me to, to dive into, but it, it really stemmed from 
that dirt bike purchase came about three months after I raced them in 400 for the first time where I realized I needed something as well. That's awesome. And and when you say that you have to be in dirt biking shape, I, it makes sense to me as someone who is just a casual observer of the sport, like none of these guys have guts. They, they're in good shape. It is. I never would have thought it prior. You know, I was the, okay, you need to be in shape a, a little bit, but the, the amount of movement that you do on that bike to, to make that thing go where you want it to go is a whole lot more. And, and you know what they say, if somebody makes it look easy, then they practice it thousands of times and you watch exactly. these guys on the pro circuits do it and they look effortless. Well, yeah, for a professional, you know, LeBron James makes basketball look super easy, but anybody that's played it knows very well that that is not the same thing. It's true for um, everything, man. I mean, people want how many people now watch Joe Rogan and they're like, I could do a podcast and then, and then they yeah. do it. And it's just two people rambling and they have no, like, I, I think this is a good podcast personally, but, but I think like in some spaces, I listen to these and it's just, you could tell there's, you know, I, I, I actually do print out notes and I get an idea of things, but you could tell when someone did zero prep, they have yeah. absolutely no game plan and they just listened to Joe Rogan or Howard Stern and they were like, this looks easy. I could do it. And I think yep. anything, even whether it's that or being a professional athlete, all of it, and even stuff that I might not have an appreciation for, it all takes skill and it all takes practice. Oh yeah. Curling. Look at curling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the men's Olympic curling team looks like a whole bunch of dads that have mullets, mustaches, and guts. But I tried curling once and that is not easy. Uh, not so, a, you know, yeah. You're not doing CrossFit or anything during the sport, but there's a, a certain level of skill that is very involved in that entire sport. And to watch guys like that, you know, take a, a gold medal, you know, there's a certain level of like just appreciation you have to have for, wow, that's, that's pretty stinking cool. Which if I were to make a suggestion to the Olympic committee, I would say that they need to put an average person next to the people that are racing. So you imagine the <laughs> hundred meter dash. And you have an average person running on there just so you can get a, an appreciation for how fast, you know, Usain Bolt is or, or these guys that are running. You'd be like, wow, oh, yeah. that is really good. You ever, you ever see these bodybuilding competitions like that there's pictures of or videos on Instagram where some guy who's in like averagely okay shape entered the competition and you're like, why are you up on that stage? Yep. Yeah. And you're just like, you don't belong up there. But then you realize that the person on stage that you're saying shouldn't be there is drastically in better shape than you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. A, a lot of the times, like they're the type of guy that if you saw them in the street and be like, this guy works out, but yeah, it, it does give you an appreciation for that type of thing. Um, Very much I think so. like, yeah, I think having an appreciation for any type of skill, like, and having that, that inspiration is so important. And even even seeing people's failures, like I'm a I'm a huge Eddie Van Halen fan, rest in peace. Um, like he was a master of his craft. But you know what? There are videos you could find of him on YouTube where there was a small period of time where he was drinking too much, probably involved in drugs, and he was making a, an ass of himself out on stage. His solos were not the the greatest thing you've ever heard, which is what he's capable of. And then yep. you would see like a few nights later on that same tour, he's absolutely killing it. And it, it actually inspires me that like all of our heroes at these things, they're all fallible. They all go through the same struggles as anybody else. And the difference is 
he could be the type of guy who could watch a performance like that and possibly go, I don't have it anymore. Let me hang it up. Or he could get back to the level of skill that we know he has. And I got to see the last Van Halen tour before Eddie passed away. And it's like, I am watching a master at work up until the day he died. He was up until like a few years out. He was, he was doing it and he was absolutely killing it. And uh, I think it's important to see that stuff because people sometimes assume these guys are like machines. They could do no wrong, but LeBron James has a bad game. And, you know, we've seen Michael Jordan have a bad game and any sport, anyone who's a great musician, actor, athlete, people we've had on the show before. But I think it's that whole comeback story of getting, picking yourself back up and finding a new purpose or finding a new way of being passionate about what you do in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the finding that that next purpose is a, a very difficult thing when you've poured yourself into anything. And, and I think you have we have one or two two types of people that you either retreat and you just become almost a, a hermit and you sit in your house and you, you tend to things that don't matter because you're so burnt out, but you're also not willing. To, to pour yourself in anything else. And then you have the people that say, well, it's not good enough and I'm going to go do something else. And, or, you know, MJ going to play for the wizards. Um, you know, like, dude, you're, you're past it. Brady entering yeah. this last season, like, Hey man, you're, you're past where your, your prime is. And I think it's obviously more common to see a, a professional athlete than it is anywhere else. Cause physicality drops off far sooner than mental acuity does. Um, but that purpose and finding it in something that isn't necessarily what it is that you grew up to and, and put yourself to become is, is something that's really, really cool. And I think you see a lot of professional athletes get into, you know, business acuity and start to purchase and, and buy things and run companies that are, are very successful. You know, they said, what well, Shaquille O'Neal and 70, 70, uh, 70 companies or something like that. Like yeah, that, I mean, the guy's on awesome. every commercial. Yeah. He is love Papa it. John now. <laughs> yeah. I, I absolutely, I love it. I love when I, I see, professional athletes and they are doing great things with with what it is that they earned you know and, and I hang out with quite a few former athletes and they all do some pretty awesome things you know Brian Peters is one of them he runs um the, the name of his company is escaping me right now but he essentially takes people through um breathing and what it does for you and so he'll put you in an ice bath he'll put you in a mobile sauna that he has with him he put my whole detachment through this thing and he will take you through controlling your breath. And in his, his words, if you can't control your breath, you can't control your environment. If you can't control your environment, you will lose and kind of breathing through some stuff. And one of the things that we're looking to do is kind of take this science and conjunction with a couple other people and put it towards PTSD and dealing with things that, that changes and uh, heart rate variability. Uh, everybody has a set number. This is how low your heart rate can go. This is what your resting is. And this is what your, your high end is. And you tend to lose your heart rate on the low end. So if you're stressed all the time, your heart rate stays higher. That's more beats over the lifetime of your, your life. It just means that there's more things that get released during it. And if you can't drop it down, you're always going to be on edge. And we see this with a lot of PTSD uh, and, and people that deal with anxiety is that they can't relax. And trying to take this yeah. breathing, these breathing routines and put them in situations where they can just relax and breathe through it prior to PTSD hopefully means that they have the tools. So once they start to enter those, uh, those times of anxiety, they know how to at least breathe out of them and, and relax a little bit. 
I, and I just looked it up as you were speaking. So Brian Peters uh, company is chasing edges performance consultant. Yep. I think that's your right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, man, I mean, and what you were saying earlier, like comparing uh, athletes, well, I'm going to say comparing them to special operations, military veterans of the many that I've had, you know, the privilege of meeting, I do really meet probably two types of guys. And I think there, there are the guys who I think you're in the category of, I always want to be working on new stuff. I always want to have new challenges. I don't want to live in the past. And then I hate to say it. There's a, there's a lot of guys I've met who are Rangers, who are Navy SEALs, and they're constantly reliving what they did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And they, they haven't moved on to new challenges or new purpose. And I don't think that's a good way of going about things for anyone. Life is scary in a lot of different ways. And Many, many people, especially in the, the special operations community, are, are scared to leave this past place where you're elevated. You're on this, this pedestal, if you will, of look at this job that I do, look at the people I'm surrounded by, and I'm accepted by them, of just, you know, superiority. We are fantastic. And, you know, and I think all the special operations, we tend to, to have more jokes towards each other and... Uh, I don't really want to say beef. You know, I have plenty of SEAL friends and we talk yeah. so much trash to each other. It's fantastic. Um, but you're you're amongst like-minded individuals. I say more than you would see, you know, the 82nd Airborne fighting against the 101st or uh, 1st Marine Division versus 1st Armored Division. Like there's not a lot of trash talk there, but you put you know, some SEALs, some Rangers and some Green Berets in a room and there's a good chance we might get into a fight if not have become best of friends because it's just kind of, <laughs> more in our mentality the problem is, is when you remove somebody from that there's this this aura that we are infallible that we can't make mistakes and that no matter what we try our hands at we're going to be fantastic um, which is 100 not true there are plenty of things that i am terrible at i don't want anybody to know what those are uh, <laughs> so i'm not going to say them on here but we we don't like to branch out because of that, you know, and one of the common things we go to events and I'll see for, you know, we don't perform as well as somebody thinks and like, man, aren't you a green beret? Like, I thought you'd be really good at this. Like, at <laughs> what point did you think kayaking was a part of my job? Like, I'm not a kayaker, <laughs> um, but that's just how it's taken. So our guys tend to sit back and, and not branch out or you see them go heavily into the contracting heavily into something that relates to the job field they're in because they know they're good at it and learning a new skill at 35 40 45 years old is a it's a humbling thing and yeah and a, and a place where we're expected to be the top you know the top you know half percent of the you know the, the best military in the world sitting back and, and then going into something where you can have a 16 year old kid you know, run yeah. you into the ground on a three gun course is not something that a lot of guys are willing to step out and do. Dude, how about guys who are, I've seen it, who are actual snipers and they end up playing Call of Duty with some 14 year old kid. And like, you suck. <laughs> you don't know what the fuck yep. you're doing. And they're like, if you oh, only yeah. knew what I actually did in Iraq and Afghanistan. Oh man, video games are, that's a terrible place. Cause you're like, that's not how you do this. That is not real. You can't, yeah. But it's actually really funny. I, I've been on a deployment and my team is actually, we, uh, we linked all the systems together and we played Call of, Duty, Call of Duty against each other, but we wore our actual communication stuff so that we could talk to each other. <laughs> uh, it's just complete nerding out, having a good time playing. That's great. Um, yeah, the, the stuff that we do that just to just have fun and get kicks out of each other is, is yeah, something it, else. 
if Chris was here, he would say the jackassery. That's that's how he oh. always likes putting it. Yeah, the the jackassery is strong in our <laughs> in the military, just in general. But there's you know everybody says you know you'll you'll find out you know, the military has a very morbid sense of humor. Well, for sure, uh, you know, and our our sense of camaraderie is different. The the way that we express ourselves to each other is very different. But the the profession in and of itself, just being willing to spend a majority of your life overseas. You know, I have nine years overseas now, and okay. you see you see so much of other cultures that you kind of you change a little bit of how you see uh, see each other, see yourself. And then when you go through some life-changing events where you watch your buddies get killed or you come under attack and you can look at the guy to your right and your left and say like, man, I really can count on you and count on you with anything. It, it changes just your communication structure. So when you come back and you get out into the civilian world, it's a, a very different, you look at people with a different view, like, I don't know if I can trust you kind of thing. And that's of no fault to the person that you're, you're, you're thinking that about. It, it's more just to set, uh, thing of programming because you know can I trust this person to to show up and help me in the middle of the night if I have a problem you know my kid sure. you know cuts himself versus you know hey I'm out of town and and this is this is probably gonna rub some people the wrong way but there are three types of people uh, in our our view uh, that we trust you got a person I can trust with my wife a person I can trust with my life and a person I can trust with both and the the people that you can trust with your wife you might not want to go into a firefight with. And vice versa, the person you can trust with your life, you might not be able to trust <laughs> with your wife. Um, and there's people that are both. And in special operations, it tends to be the the latter, the third. And I've met people on either side of that. Um, but it, but then you get into the civilian populace and you look at them and say, well, I don't know if I can trust you with either of those. So I know I can't do it with both. And that's a, a very weird feeling. And it's where we really come in and say, look, these are people that you're going to be around that you can at least trust with your life. And I'll take one of the two if, if all I can have is that. And and a lot of guys will honestly take the second one. I'd rather be able to trust you with my life because I can compartmentalize, you know, my personal life from the things that we're going to do. And when you can't find that out there, you can't find a, a, a group of trusted people. And, and I had a friend say something very similar to me in this. I went down to visit him. We were in the infantry together. And uh, he said, man, you know, I, I went over to the VFW and I, I, you know, I kind of laughed. Like, Why are you killing the VFW? And he's like, you don't get it, man. I, I don't have what you have. I don't have the camaraderie anymore. I don't work with anybody that's a veteran. I don't live near anybody that's a veteran. Nobody talks the way that I talk, understands what I talk about. So I have to go there just to vent. He's like, you're still in it. And that kind of hit pretty hard. Um, so yeah, sense of humor, you know, the, the way that we do talk to each other. That's why I think you see all these veteran led companies really starting to rise, the communities that they're building behind them is because there is this segment of the population that's out there going, I don't need nine different flavors of milk options at Starbucks. You know, I, mm -hmm. I just want my coffee to be better than what was in the defect and we'll call it good, man. And, and you can get moving on. Um, so I, I think there's a continuing segment or uh, segregation in our society between those that have ventured out and, and actually lived and tried to do something that was bigger than themselves. And then those that have embraced the COVID lifestyle and just sit back yeah. in their house and, you know, binge watch Netflix and tell us how the world really is. Yeah. No, a true story, man. And I, I, the only thing I wish is I, I just wish there, because sometimes as, as you said earlier, it's friendly, it's not serious, but I do wish when it is serious, 
there was less infighting between veteran organizations and special operations veterans because some of it is nasty and some of it is I, I don't just a constant competition as in you know I, I, just giving an example here if I see a veterans organization put out a story I, I that we're going to talk about on the podcast I'll always give them credit if there's a great veteran podcast I want to talk about it but sometimes I do think there's this mentality of like I'm just promoting my brand, forget everyone yep. else. And and yeah, I wish there was a little bit more camaraderie in that. And I think there are guys who do have that, but then there's there's some who don't. Yeah, I, and pride, ego goes into it. Um, I get defensive about this organization. And it's usually when somebody says, hey, I know these guys, and they're, they're run this great organization and they do exactly what you do. And I'll be like, I'm going to stop you right there. They don't do exactly what you do. You know, they'll put a guy in a deer stand for one day and you don't need to change your life. For that. I can show up to a deer stand absolutely drunk. And if I get a deer, cool. If I don't cool, uh, because next week, it doesn't matter. The following week, you know, the following month, it doesn't matter to show up and do what we do. Like I said, that's that lifestyle change. Um, but we're we're a niche organization in that sense. And I work with some great organizations that do the, the inpatient care that take care of getting guys to places. And we work on a cycle of getting the guys that we send to them into our programs after uh, and realizing that there's nonprofits out there that do fantastic things that we don't. And then that are needed, you know, our conversation about medication versus underlying uh, problems. And there's underlying problems that we are just not built, nor do I want to be built to do that. Cause I think out here in, uh, actually I was out in Charlotte and the commercial's whole purpose is to highlight some of the problems that we have with mental health and how we take care of them. So in this commercial, it'll be released here in about two and a half weeks. Uh, I think we're looking at March 8th to drop it. That'll be across all of our social media platforms. And we have some other social media platforms that are going to push it out with us. And the underlying tone of it is this is how we're doing things different. We're looking at mental health differently. And one of the things is he's going to have a voicemail that says, hey, John, we'd love, we can't wait to get you on board. You know, we need those nine documents filled out first, right? And that's a, that's a heavy ask for a guy that's in pain. Like, I need help right now, but you yeah. need, and I, and I understand the red tape and the stuff that's needed to protect an organization, but we're, we're really starting to call out some of these things out there that, these nonprofits that do all of this infighting about things that don't really don't matter. And, you know, and they'll, they'll claim all of these different things that you're familiar with, that, that we're familiar with. And, and I'm not going to point out a single one because sure. I think every, every nonprofit out there that is out there to do stuff for veterans, somewhere in the organization, they're doing something good. And that, that thing is that they're saving lives um, or helping out, then, then right on. Could they be run different? Sure. Could we be run different? Probably, you know, not saying that we're a perfect organization or that they're not, but we're, we're trying to draw light to that, that thought, you know, if we're, if we're continue fighting about stuff, if we're so busy caught up in the things that we didn't want to become or that we were created to, to fight, then we're not doing nearly as much good as we can. You know, nobody on my staff's paid. Um, everything's volunteer based, which you know, we're getting less hours than if I paid somebody, but that's, that's money that we're taking 
you know, out of entry fees for guys getting into races to do stuff, or that's gear that the jujitsu team doesn't have, or the three gun guys don't get to use. How long can we maintain that? Uh, I don't know. At some point, this organization is going to get big enough that I'll need to have a paid staff, but we have ways around a lot of it right now that, that we're able to put a lot of things in. And I think that's where you see the biggest fighting between nonprofits happen is, yeah, well, you spent this much on, you know, you made this much last year, you you brought, or you paid this much to your staff. You know, that's where you see a lot of fighting, or you only use this much on your programs and you're spending this on that. And we're not in the business of analyzing another 501c3's 990. We're, yeah. we're not, I, I don't care. We're, we're out here to get guys into a purpose uh, for like a set of positive reasons to set that alarm clock. Like, why are you waking up? And if I spend my time worrying about, you know, where wounded warrior is putting their money, then I, that's, that's stuff that I'm not worrying about uh, to helping guys out. So that's, yeah. <laughs> I, and I think the only thing that does need to be called out on, on that end is you're kind of saying are the organizations where the vast majority of the money are going to these people who are on the board, the people who run the organization and not going to helping veterans. And I feel like the grassroots organization organizations, whether it's you guys or these organizations I know, like Gallant Few or Horses for Heroes out of New Mexico. I mean, there's just so many great veterans organizations that are run by individuals like yourself that do incredible work. And I hate to say it, but it's like a lot of the stuff that you see commercials for on TV. Those are some of the organizations where you look into the funding and you go, all right, I could donate my money to somewhere better. Um, mm -hmm. I know you got a packed schedule. The, the last thing I want to ask you before we wrap up, I mean, this audience loves hearing about what you guys have done as Green Berets. Any like cool combat story to uh, to wrap up this show? Oh, man, I wasn't ready to talk about that. Think, um... <laughs> I mean, if there's anything you're comfortable talking about or, you know, or or maybe even just a cool story of training or anything like that. Um, I'd say probably uh, I'll just say my, my favorite, probably cool guy story. Uh, <laughs> I was in Senegal, Africa. Um, I was in charge of something they call the Earth Emergency Ready Readiness Facility. It was on the airfield. Uh, SOCOM owns it, and it's a place where we could stage things uh, in case we have to leave country fast or units come in. We can put things in there. Uh, we were on our last three weeks, four weeks of being in country. And uh, Team Sergeant says, hey, guys, um, just so you know, I want all of your beards gone by Friday. You know, and this is like a Monday. Uh, he's like, I'm just giving you time to figure it out. So we did what, you know, proper, you know, disciplined soldiers do. And we started cutting them down into just, you know, giant, you know, lamb chops and, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, I had this, this Fu Manchu uh, that I had put on. Like, yeah, it was long enough that you could braid the, um, you could braid it. I had really long hair. Well, this is right when Ebola is kicking off. And Senegal became one of the forward staging grounds to fighting Ebola in West Africa. So I get called and it says, you know, hey, um, you know, be over to the earth. You got to we're going to hand it over to the, the Air Force's crew, whoever they were. Uh, so I roll over there and I'm in all of the proper riding gear that I'm supposed to be for my motorcycle. Um, so I'm in flip flops, uh, cut off shorts and a tank top with a helmet. I had a helmet on. And I roll up and I get off and I pull off the helmet. And there's this guy sitting there in proper military uniform. He's a, uh, he's a colonel. And uh, I take my helmet off and I put my hair back and I run my hands through it. And I was like, hey, I'm Nick. And I shake his hand. And he was, 
there's a, a full pause of him staring at me and he's like oh fuck it man i'm tim what's up dude <laughs> <laughs> it just completely lost all military decorum right there. And he's like, this guy obviously doesn't care. Um, <laughs> that was uh, that was a fun trip because they uh, one one of the great things about special operations is you're often the only ones that are really in a country out doing things, especially in places like Africa. You know, you'll get missions from the embassy out somewhere doing things, but we were really the the only white people out roaming around in that country and getting to see native. Uh, native cultures that are not in big cities that are, you know, westernized or whatever, you know, really sitting down, eating, eating food with tribes is really stinking cool and, and something that you know, a lot of people just don't get a chance to see. Um, so we're getting, we're giving this leeway to where I can ride around in board shorts and flip flops, but we're also right. in some pretty dangerous places doing things that the average person doesn't know that we're out there doing um, is, is also one of the really cool things about our job. Yeah, and the, and the thing I've learned over the years from Green Berets, like that I've gotten to know, like Terry Shepard and Derek Gannon. I don't know if you know those guys, but uh, yeah, I mean, they, you guys, more so than SEALs or Rangers, from what I know, really embed yourself more in the culture and do get to know the people in the environment. Very much. Um, SEALs and Rangers have their, their place just like we have ours. Um, the way that I like to, to sum it up, if you want a city taken, uh, you're going to send in the 82nd Airborne. You're going to send in 101st, 1st Armored. Um, if you want to take a village, you'll send the Rangers in. You know, maybe an airfield, you'll send the Rangers in. You want to take the village, you're going to send in SEALs. If you want one person in that village dead, you're going to send in Delta. But if you want one village to kill another, you send in Green Berets. <laughs> um, we do our jobs very differently, and we're, we're built that way. We're often classified against each other um, as if we do the same thing, and we don't. Um, just flat and simple. The, the SEALs construct isn't built to work embedded with indigenous folks as to where we are. We're all you know, certified and qualified in foreign languages. Um, every year we have to recertify and test uh, different levels of proficiency in our, in our language. Some of us are, are better at it than others. Um, and we're, our training pipeline is very different in that sense as well. You know, our, our deltas, our medics are not just trauma certified, but they know how to do, you know, uh, veterinary stuff. They are, you know, gynecologists. They're, they can do dentistry work. They do all sorts of stuff that your average medic, um, even your 68 Whiskey One, where they're just certified as trauma. Um, our AT deltas are, you know, next to none in the field as far as uh, what they can do for us. And, and the same thing goes just for all the professions. It isn't just, I know how to use the weapon. It's, I can fix any foreign weapon. You know, if I was an 18 Bravo, you know, on site. So our structure is built out very differently than, than say the SEAL platoons or the MARSOT teams uh, or, or whatnot. So we are, we are a different type of special operations. We're what we call a, you know, a slow burn campaign where we're here to fight and build up for years, not be let's go and shoot them in the face right now and leave, though we do have that, that capacity um, as seen by the number of Medal of Honors that we've pulled uh, as Green Berets, which is the most. But um, it's it, we all have our, our jobs and our, our chosen professions, and the SEALs are fantastic at theirs. The, the Raiders are, you know, they're great at theirs. We have great times when we get together and we do we do work, you know, previously I was, I was in Ukraine and we had a SEAL team in there with us. Uh, we had a couple of ODAs and there was no, in that kind of a setting, there's no infighting. There's a lot of trash talking. Um, <laughs> and usually it's almost all in good nature. You know, I've yeah. been to free fall schools with SEALs and EOD techs and 
we all just go out and we laugh and joke about all oh, this one ODI I worked with was like this. And oh yeah, we had this, this SEAL team that, or this SEAL platoon that showed up and they were like this. Uh, but ultimately it's, it's a, it's a really good camaraderie. And I, what I've seen is after guys get out, it gets even tighter because you're like, all right, you're, you're at least a soft guy. So I know you've been specially selected for something. Let's figure out how, how good of friends we can be. Yeah. And, and I could tell just speaking with you on this call, there is a similarity in kind of how technical you are. I could tell you're well-read the way that you speak to a guy like Terry Shepard or Derek Gannon, like there, oh, there is some type of similarity, right? Terry's a great guy. Yeah. I've seen him in years, but yeah. Yeah. I, I've talked to him on the phone a couple of times and he's, he's pretty funny, but he's a heck of a personality and that's why he gets put on TV. Yeah. Oh, did you ever, did you watch that dude, your screwed show he was on with Jake's wig? I don't know if I did. It was so uh, funny, man, because there was such a difference between them. I don't, I don't know if he said it to him on the show or behind the scenes, because there was definitely a rivalry between those guys because of how Jake is and how Terry is. And I know that, that Terry said to Jake something to the effect of like, we pride ourselves on being quiet professionals and like, you are neither quiet nor professional. No professional. And, and that's like, but that's Jake Zwig. Like he's he's an out there type of guy. No, he's he talked about it on the show. He started like yelling at crew members there. We're telling him to get in this vehicle when he was on top shot. And um, yeah, there's just there, there's like a, a similarity I see between you, Terry, uh, and uh, Derek and other Green Berets. I just I I when you start to meet a lot of these guys, you could kind of tell who's a SEAL, who's a Ranger, who's who's uh, mm -hmm. Delta and all that. There's definitely a, a difference just in culture and yeah. there is within, especially, you know, within Green Berets, uh, we make fun of other groups for, for having their stereotypes and, and guys will say something to be like, ah, yep, I knew you were a first grouper. And for all the <laughs> SF guys out there listening, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that. Um, but it's, it, it's interesting, you know, the, the profession drives culture um, and then culture drives profession. And it's this, this cycle and we've been around since 1952 and we've, we're invested in a oh, lot I don't know the exact number, but it's well over a hundred countries right now, actively that Green Berets are, are out there doing something, uh, cause it's not always kinetic places that we're in, um, you know, pretty much any country in Europe, almost any country in Asia, probably every country in Africa, we, we have people probably every country in South America, we'd have at least one, if not a team sitting in there doing something and, a lot of it isn't always, hey, let's go shoot guys in the face. It's a lot yeah. of, you know, hey, how can we better this country and this relationship sure. that we have? Well, what's a good way that we can do it? Well, let's send in professional soldiers that are at least competent in the language um, and have them build relationships and, and build it up to, to do something better. And that's really where Green Berets excel is where the, the guys that can come in and, and teach you know, basic field medicine, you know, basic tactics to your, your fledgling military, because you just had a coup and you took over and the U S government's happy about that. Cause you know, it's no longer your, uh, you know, a socialist or communist dictatorship, but now it's a, you know, upstart democracy. Well, what better way to show it than to send in professional soldiers that we're standing behind you and the cost dollar for dollar to get a green beret team in there versus a battalion, which is the level uh, constant level that we work at uh, for the attachment to send a battalion from the 82nd Airborne. That's so much more money to to do it. So just dollar for dollar, special operations is the best investment that the the U.S. military can have to to send in for anything small scale with high uh, high consequence or high outcome. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's all well said, Ben. And and once again, it's greenberetracing.org on Instagram at green underscore beret underscore racing underscore. We'll have all of that in the description. Green Beret Racing, once again, dot org. Uh, great speaking with you, man. I thought this was an awesome conversation. I think we covered a lot of ground. And hopefully people donate and get involved in the organization. It's, I certainly have a lot more of an awareness after this interview. And I'm, I'm glad we finally did this. I'm sure we'll do a part two with Chris at some point. Um, but I, I really enjoyed having you on. Hey, Ian, thanks for having us. Uh, this has been great. Uh, like I said, I love talking about the organization. I'm deeply passionate about it. I think what we're doing is the is tackling things in a way that isn't currently being tackled and, and we're seeing great resort results. And, you know, anybody that wants to, to reach out to us, he said he listed the social media stuff out there. Feel free to, to pick up brains or get involved in some of our events. That's all for this episode of the Battle Line Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. To sign up for future Battleline tactical courses, go to www.christantoperanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never, never quit. quit.